I was ready to get back to 1 Timothy 2, but before we do that, I'm going to do one more uh, topical message. Uh, and we did a, a, a deal uh, for Good Fight Ministries and Blessed Hope in our podcast, Good Fight Radio Show, that'll be airing real soon. Uh, on just looking at unbiblical, popular, unbiblical sayings that are just used all the time. You hear Christians say these things all the time uh, and teach these things to one degree or another. And uh, we just dealt with some of them. And I want to deal with more than we were able to deal with in that episode. And I actually want to go a little deeper on a couple of them than we were able to go actually as well. Although we cover a lot of things in, in that show that I won't be able to cover in this message. That's why it's good to uh, hear both at times. Uh, but uh, this one is it's just, you know, popular, unbiblical sayings. And you may, you know, squirm a little bit and say, man, I'm guilty of saying that. Or you may say, praise God, I'm glad he's addressing that because I know someone who is caught up in something, you know. Either way, we want to we land where the scripture is. And I'm not talking about popular false doctrines so much. In fact, I've been working on one of <laughs> many books that will probably never see the light of day on a popular lies in the church. And I've got 50 of them that I'm going through. 50 of them. And I'm not going to be dealing with any of those lies or any of the false doctrines so much, even though you can say some of these sayings are false doctrines in them themselves to a degree, uh, but uh, they might not make that list because they're more popular sayings that sometimes have some, they're true to a degree, but not totally true. And they're often said in a, w a way where they have implications that are false. Uh, and oftentimes they're just not true at all. And uh, one, you know, one uh, popular lie that I want to deal with first is, and this is going to be very edifying for us as a fellowship, so you just make sure our foundation is strong. In the last days, I mean, Paul does say to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, uh, verse 16, watch your life, or in some translation, your behavior, and your doctrine. Watch your life or your behavior and your doctrine or your teaching, and in so doing, you will save yourselves and those who hear you. So those who talk about your lifestyle is really not important. Hey, we're saved by grace. That's a lie. Watch your life and your doctrine. So those who say, oh, doctrine is not important. You know, it can be divisive. Let's not. Doctrine means teaching. You're telling me Jesus' teaching, the teaching of the apostles and the prophets isn't important? You know, watch your, your, your life and your doctrine. In so doing, you'll save yourself and those who hear you. It's all important. But one of the things that has been happening lately uh, is that people are saying, hey, the Old Testament isn't important, you know. The Old Testament, we don't really need the Old Testament. I don't even look at the Old Testament, some will say. In fact, uh, Landell sent me a text, what was it, two weeks ago or so, Landell? Where a friend that she was encouraging, uh, actually I think you invited this friend to uh, the Marvel, you know, premiere of our second movie, and they didn't make it, and they kind of, kind of a scathing statement to you that, was very anti-Jewish, you know. Jews are the enemies of Christianity and so forth. But the person claimed to be a Christian the whole time and, and uh, so forth. And then also saying that we don't need the Old Testament, you know. And the Old Testament's not important to us as Christians. Am I getting that right, Landell? And I gave Landell a pretty long, more than a block <laughs> statement, pretty long rectangular statement. Uh, just encourage her, but... Then she said, I forwarded that to my friend. I'm like, oh, okay, well, hey, spoke the truth, you know. Uh, but I gave her certain scriptures, and I'll probably use some of that here. But it's not just people thinking that way. This starts with teachers often. Wrong, you know, teaching that people receive or attitudes they receive and so forth. And in fact, uh, many of you heard of Charles Stanley, right? Very popular teacher. Uh, his son, Andy Stanley, who is very popular teacher now as well, uh, Andy Stanley, uh, he argued in a sermon uh, that the Christian faith must, quote, be unhitched, he said, from the Old Testament. And he claimed that, quote, Peter, James, Paul, elected to unhitch the Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. So should we unhitch our Christian faith from the Jewish scriptures, meaning the Old Testament? By the way, the New Testament is Jewish scripture too. Did you know that? Every book, but maybe maybe Luke and Acts, right? Luke was, uh, we, we believe, a Gentile. But uh, he's referring, though, to the Old Testament. And I thought, this is so ridiculous. And later he backtracked on that, but then later on he stuck his foot back in his mouth and he stated, quote, so the early church, no, uh, so the early church, you know, no one ever said in the early church, the Bible says. 
the Bible teaches, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, because there was no the Bible. So now he's denigrating the idea that in the early church that they had scripture to go to, to, uh, you know, to define, you know, uh, their doctrines, you know, their faith, their, their practices, and they, they could actually say, hey, you know, the Bible or the word of God says uh, that is, all this is so ridiculous. It's so untrue. And you know what? We've got to be really careful with this kind of teaching because if you accept it, you become disarmed. Father, give us wisdom in your son's name to, to, to hold fast to your truth and, and to defeat the enemy and the lies that are so popular out there so that we're not stripped of the armor you've given us to persevere in our faith. You know, it's important that we understand that when we put the armor of God on, just about every, pretty much every piece of armor is connected to the Bible. It's connected to God's word, you know? You know, righteousness comes through faith, and faith comes through hearing, and hearing through the word, hear, the word of God, amen? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So the, uh, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, you know? The, the, the scriptures, you know? It's the gospel, and the good news that saves us, amen? The belt of, what's it called? The belt of what? Truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth, Amen? The shield of faith. Faith, again, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The sword of the spirit, which is the, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Amen? This is the word. In fact, Jesus said over and over again, the scripture says. In fact, when Satan tried to defeat him, even twisting a scripture, Satan knows the Bible better than probably any of us here, probably better than all of us collectively. Not that he understands it in his proper context. But he used a scripture. He used scripture by quoting scripture to Jesus saying, Drop, jump off the pinnacle of the temple. And he quoted scripture that he'll, he'll send his angels to keep thee from, you know, dashing thy foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written, right? Over and over again. I mean, he said, it is written, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and serve him only. When Satan said, bow down and worship me. When he said, turn these stones into bread. He said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And when Satan told him to jump from the pinnacle temple, he says, written, thou shalt not test the Lord thy God. Amen. So three times Jesus said, it is what? Written. What was he basically saying? He's basically saying, the Bible says. Okay. The Bible, I mean, the, the word Bible is from the Greek word, you know, biblia, and it means book. Okay. But it's very interesting. It's been proven in scholarship that the Old Testament Jews prior to the New Testament, prior to the coming of Jesus, referred to their Old Testament as the books. You know, later we, we refer to it as, you know, Tanakh, you know. They refer to the first five books as, as the law or as Torah and the entire Old Testament as Tanakh. But they referred to all of that as the books, right? So they understood the books to be the word of God. And the scripture, Jesus referred to the scripture over and over again. So when Andy Stanley says we need to unhinge ourselves from the Old Testament scriptures as a Christian church, and Peter, James, and John had, or Paul, he says, uh, and uh, I want to get this right, Peter, James, and Paul did such. And when he says the early church, you know, no one ever said in the early church, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, the Bible says, the Bible teaches, because there was no Bible, untrue. You know, and the whole New Testament hadn't been written yet, but they understood that they had the Word of God. And the New Testament was still being written. And when Jesus' day, it was to being written. And by the way, he, when he was stating it, he was stating New Testament truth. It was the Word of God as he stated it, amen? Even though it wasn't codified on pages yet, it was still alive and it was still uh, the New Covenant Scripture. Now, it's interesting because uh, go to Luke chapter 4. Talk about the Bible says. Look what Jesus does. When he starts his ministry in Luke chapter, chapter 4. And please uh, go to verse 17. Jesus has just been tested in the wilderness and he passed with flying colors. Uh, Satan tested Adam and Eve in the, not wilderness, but in the garden. And they fell radically. Jesus gets tested in a harder place in the wilderness with very similar temptations. The, you know, less the flesh, less the eyes, the pride of life is what they got tested with. He got tested with those three things and, he, with the, you know, turn the stones of bread, flesh, you know, uh, the kings of the world, less the eyes, right? The, you know, uh, pinnacle of the temple, show how awesome you are by just jumping and you'll be secured, the pride of life. He got tested in every way and he passed with, with uh, flying colors. But it's interesting, look what we read here in verse 17. When he comes back, he's filled with the Holy Spirit 
And we read in chapter 4, verse 17, And the book of the prophet Isaiah, he went into the synagogue where all these Jews were. And and, and the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to you or to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them as they were looking at him, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he said, the Bible says. You know, don't tell me they didn't say the Bible says. They, they referred to the Bible as the scripture and of the law and the Psalms and the prophets and so forth uh, collectively. It's interesting, in John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, it says that Jesus rebuked those who, uh, you, know, didn't not, you know, didn't believe in his words. And we read, quote, if you believed Moses, he said to them, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Again, he's pointing to the scripture. Amen. So Jesus constantly did this. In Luke, remember when he was on the road to Emmaus and the two disciples were distraught on the road to Emmaus and they were just disheveled, hurt, heartbroken because he, the Messiah had been crucified well, it's very interesting. Even before we get to that, I'll just reference a couple things. In Luke 16, 29, we read Moses, of Moses and the prophets. And in Luke 16, 16, we read of the law and the prophets. But in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, we read that Jesus had opened up the scriptures to them. And he showed them his resurrection. And that the Messiah would suffer, but he'd also rise again in the scriptures. And then it says in that verse, chapter 24, verse 27, then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, beginning with Moses, first five books, and all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. There it is again. He's basically saying the Bible says in contradiction and in contradistinction from Andy Stanley. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, uh, they said to one another, this are these, these men on the road to Emmaus, were not our hearts burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road, while he was explaining the scriptures to us? Now they speak of the law and, you know, Moses and the prophets as the scriptures. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44, a few verses later we read, now he said to them, Jesus that is, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus' category, and oftentimes the Jews divided the Bible up into the, as, or as the Old Testament Bible into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And now it's interesting, uh, but he said, you know, Paul, you know, he, he, he didn't say like the Bible says. Is he kidding? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I declare unto you the gospel by which you are being saved unless you have believed in vain that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 2 through 4. And that he was buried and that he rose again according to the scriptures. That's Paul basically saying the Bible says. Amen. Okay. Uh, So it's heartbreaking to me because this has to do with how you live your life. If you believe the Bible is the word of God, and Andy Stanley, to be fair, he would not say the Old Testament's not the word of God. He would say it is, but it's just not for us. Or at that point, at least we're supposed to be unhinged from it and not say the Bible says, you know, and uh, so forth. And he kind of castigated the idea of, you know, demean the idea of saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You kidding? Jesus knows me, this I know, for the Bible does indeed tell me so. Amen. That's the word of God to us. So this can have incredibly detrimental effect on your life and on your walk with God and, and whether or not you're victorious in spiritual warfare, amen? Whether or not, not you are uh, effective as a witness when you witness to, say, Jewish people that only believe in the Old Testament 
or when you're witnessing to anybody because there's so much Old Testament truth that we ought to be using. Amen? So this is very, very important. Now, go to 2 Peter chapter 3. Look what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 15. He says, And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Meaning God being patient for people, waiting for them to repent. Don't look at it as, man, God, how come you're taking so long? But look at it as salvation because earlier in chapter 3, he says the patience of the Lord brings salvation. He says, that, and that's where he says that the Lord's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. He's waiting for people to come to him. He's being patient with us. So he says, regard the patience of the Lord as salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them the things in which some things are hard to understand. Which, are the, which the untaught and unstable distort. So Paul's writings, Peter says, the unstable and untaught distort, especially in regard to God's patience. And Paul deals with that in the book of Romans, pointing out that teach, false teachers are saying that he teaches that God's patience and God's grace means you can basically do whatever you want. And Paul says, you know, sh should we sin so grace would more abound? God forbid. He says, that's a lie. Paul is not teaching that. And false teachers are twisting his teachings. And he says they distort. And the word distort is used of what? Being tortured on a torture rack. Anybody here ever been tortured on a torture rack? I hope not. That would be very painful. And tortures took place. And that word was used of that to get people to say things they didn't want to say. Well, that's what they do. The scriptures, they torture the scriptures to make them say what they don't say. And notice what he says in the middle of verse 16 which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the what? Scriptures to their own destruction. What's he calling Paul's words? Scripture. And they twist not only his words, but the rest of the scriptures, meaning Paul's words and the rest of the scriptures. So they were already understanding the New Testament letters as being the scripture of the new covenant. Amen. It's a great passage to use when you're in a conversation with somebody to say, hey, no, you know what? I want to show you that the New Testament writers understood the writings of the New Testament were part of Scripture. In fact, go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. I love 1 Timothy 5, 18. And I'll say this is a verse that you can use and apply to your own witnessing uh, when you're sharing with people, uh, especially people that say, well, you know, the, the New Testament was written in, wasn't written until the second or third century. By the way, do you know that that's basically an old argument that is hardly ever used anymore? You know why that's not used anymore? A lot of people said, well, the New Testament, you know, the Gospels and stuff and the New Testament writings, they weren't written until long after you know, the first century, second and third century. That was such a, a ridiculous, I've got to be nice, but just a stupid argument. I'm sorry. It was. Why? Because we have all kinds of church fathers, right? Not only in the late first century, but in the second, second century, quoting from all the books of the New Testament over and over again. And many of them being quoted in the latter part of the first century and early part of the second century. So quite amazing. But this is really interesting. In 1 Peter chapter 5, first, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18, of 17 and 18, he says in verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not what? Muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And the labor is worthy of his wages. You know, a lot of churches, they'll quote these verses and they'll take an offering, you know, for the pastor. No, that's not why I'm here, okay? Right here, this is why I'm here in verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the what? the ox while he is, he is threshing. Now, what does he say just before this in verse 18, guys? For the what says? The scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while it is threshing. He calls, he calls this the scripture saying this. Well, what scripture says that? You might look in your margin, you might see a verse there. Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse four. says, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. So he quotes the Old Testament, referring to it as Scripture. But notice this. He says the Scripture says, and he quotes the Old Testament. But look what else he says. He goes on to say, and the labor is worthy of his what? 
wages. The laborer is worthy of his wages. My Bible only has, you know, this is a preaching Bible, so it doesn't have a lot of references, but it only has Deuteronomy 25.4 there. It doesn't have the second reference there. Do you know what the second reference there is there? Look in your margin, maybe. If you've got a cell phone, it might be a little harder. Technology is good, but it's also bad at times, you know. But it's interesting. You know where that's from? Either Matthew 10.10 or Luke, okay? And uh, this is important because in Matthew 10.10, we read, uh, Jesus says, take no bag for the road or second tunic or sandals or staff for the worker is worthy of his wages. Wow. So what is the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy calling Scripture? The Gospel of Matthew. And the Gospel of Luke, it's also in the Gospel of Luke. He's either quoting Matthew or Luke or both, because they both record Jesus as saying that. So isn't it interesting that here's Paul very clearly saying, the Bible says. And when he refers to the Scripture, he refers to the Old Testament, and he refers to the New Testament, even as Peter did in 2 Peter. Amen? Now, it's interesting. Uh, the Old Testament's so very important. In fact, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And when you get there, I think it's, this is a very, very important uh, passage. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul refers again to the Old Testament. And he says something quite interesting. In verse 1, he says this, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. He's talking about in the Exodus, when God led them with the cloud to keep them cool during the hot day. Sometimes you wish you were walking wherever you're walking outside, even if it's to your car, when it's been 108, 9 degrees a couple days ago, that there was a nice cloud over your head, right? Because it's so hot. What well, was even hotter for them, that God provided a cloud to keep them from dying in the wilderness, you know, and, and a pillar of fire by night. And it says, For I don't, want you, I don't want you to be unaware or ignorant, as King James says, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, talking about the, the Red Sea, and all were baptized into Moses and into the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual drink or the same spiritual food. I'm sorry, all ate the same spiritual food, the manna from heaven, right? Which was a picture of Christ's body, amen? The sea of Red Sea, going through that was a picture of baptism, okay? And all drank the same spiritual drink, verse 4. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. When the rock was hit and water came out, that was a picture of Jesus, amen? Who gives us living water. So he's saying they had all these spiritual experiences. You know, Jude talks about them. He says, and God and the Lord, after he saved the people out of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe in Jude uh, verse 6. And I say verse 6, there's only one, if you will, chapter there. And Paul's saying, hey, these guys had all these wonderful spiritual experiences. But verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. Most of them were wiped out because of the rebellion before they got to the promised land. And that's a warning to us. How so? Look at verse 6. Now these things happened as examples for who? Us. So that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Your flesh craves evil things. All of our flesh craves evil things. If we were just, just went with whatever our flesh desired, we'd all just be in huge trouble. But we take up our crosses as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We deny ourselves daily and we follow him, amen? We deny the flesh and we have blessed lives as we put Jesus first in our lives, amen? But he goes on to give several examples in verses 7 through 10, which we don't have time to get into because I want to get into a whole lot of other unbiblical sayings. But look at verse 11. Now these things happen to them as an example. That's in the Old Testament. That's an example to who, guys? To us. And they were what? They were written in the Old Testament. Are you with me in verse 11 now, right? Now these things happen to them as an example. That's what he just said in verse 6. Why do you think he's reiterating it? In case we miss it, in case we allow it to be de-emphasized in our theology or in our lives, he emphasizes it twice. Now these things happen 
to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. So he points to these Old Testament scriptures as examples as to guide us so we won't fall in the same way. And he also gives us encouragement because in the very next verse he says, no temptation is taking you but that which is common to man. But God is faithful who with the temptation will also give you a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Aren't you grateful that when Satan tempts you, you know, and he tempts you to, you know, to, to fall into some kind of sin, maybe it's gossip, and then you have Old Testament scriptures you could look at and say, wow, Look at the Proverbs, man. There's more commands against gossip and Proverbs than, than most of the books in the Old New Testament put together. Amazing, right? Or if you're tempted to fall into sin and there's somebody at work, even though you're married or even though you're, you're, you're saving yourself for marriage and, and they want to sleep with you and, 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 and it may be the proposition like Potiphar's wife, she says, I've sent all, you know, her husband's gone. I've sent all the servants out of the house. It's just you and me, Joseph. And she grabs his cloak and he flees from her. Remember that? Leaving his cloak in her hands as she takes off. And you know what? He fled from her because, you know what? Why? She said, no one would see, Joseph. And he said, I couldn't do this against my God, right? And my master. God saw. He didn't want to break God's heart. Even though his master wasn't there, he wasn't going to sin against him. But we can look at those Old Testament teachings, right? And when the Bible says, flee idolatry, Right? When it says, we can look at the idolatry of the Old Testament when they worshiped the golden calf, right? Or they worshiped the Baals, or they worshiped, you know, all kinds of things. Or we look at sexual sins when it says, flee sexual sin, we can say, ah, oh, look at how Joseph fled sexual sin. I praise God for the Old Testament. Because often when I teach, I use, I illustrate, and this is very important, I illustrate New Testament principles, and you should do this too. When you're ministering to people, when you're teaching in Sunday school, when you're sharing with your friends, when you're sharing with your own children, you should use New Testament principles and you put flesh and bone on them by using Old Testament illustrations. Are you with me? It's very, very powerful. And the Lord does that all the time. In fact, do you know there's over 300 references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation? Why do you think I spent so much time in the book of Revelation? Well, because it's end times and it's relevant. And yeah, that's part of it. But because if you ask me, what one book can I teach the whole Bible from more than any other book? I wouldn't have to think about the book of Revelation. Because there's hundreds of, of uh, way more than 300. Some have believed there's, say there's over 700. We talk about allusions, quotations, citations, uh, uh, typologies. And the, every aspect of those typologies and, and just, it just grows. It's the, it's the ultimate book. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It just, that's, why, that's one way I teach the Bible is through the book of Revelation because I'm constantly in other books of the Bible. And a lot of people love teaching like at Blessed Hope because we go through the scripture. We go all over the place and always hand in a glove. And that way you comprehensively understand God's will for your life. But guess what? When you're in any book or you're in any New Testament principle, there, if there's not always, there's at least almost always an Old Testament illustration for New Testament principles. So the Old Testament is very, very important. I've been studying the book of James uh, recently, and it's just five chapters long, but there's 22 quotations or allusions to 22. I sh I'm sorry. There's allusions or citations from 22 different books of the Old Testament. Not just 22 citations, allusions. There's far more than that, but to 22 different books in the Old Testament. It's just, it's just mind-blowing. And uh, listen to this last one before we move to the next proposition that's untrue. Romans 16, 4. For whatever was written in earlier times, that's Genesis ha, to Malachi, was written for our instruction. The Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Amen? I love that. It's a good balance to the warnings that we read to encourage us as examples so we don't fall the way they fell away. We say, I'm not going to do that. Look what God did to them. But it also gives us hope. It, it says these Old Testament scriptures, you know, uh, they, they give us hope, uh, instruction through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures that we might have hope. And how many of you, we look at Abraham's life, right? Isaac's life, Jacob's life. We, we go through the hall of faith in, the, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, right? All these, all these champions of the faith. Remember that? 
You go through Hebrews 11, Paul of faith, it talks about Abraham's faith, right? Sarah's faith, right? Moses' faith, on and on. It's beautiful, it's powerful. But you know what? If I, had, if I had chapter 11 of the book of Hebrews, but I didn't have the Old Testament, I'd be clueless to what he's talking about. How can I know about Abraham's faith other than the line or two you give me if I don't have the Old Testament? So you see how ridiculous, I'm sorry, Andy's statement's point is by, well, they didn't say the Bible says. They didn't have a Bible. Sure, they had a Bible. Amen. They had the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures being written. And after John wrote the book of Revelation in the 90s, then guess what they had? All the New Testament writings. And they might not have had them all at once after John wrote the book of Revelation. You can't say they, nobody did have them all at once because, but you, have, you keep seeing lists in the second century, even late second century of all the books of the Bible. So the next uh, thing I want to look at is another slogan. You know, I don't worship the Bible. I worship Jesus. You ever hear that one? I don't worship the Bible. I worship Jesus. And I don't know anybody who worships the Bible, but the implication is that, you know, the authority of the Bible is not that important or it's relegated to second after Jesus. By the way, how do we understand who Jesus is and that he has authority outside of the Bible? Amen. How can you even understand that he has authority if the Bible isn't authority? And the Bible says, God's word says he puts the, his word as high as himself. And it's interesting because uh, usually when people say, are saying that is if you believe in inerrancy. Say the word inerrancy. Inerrancy. Iner it's a beautiful word. And it just speaks of, of the perfection of God's word. That it, it's perfect uh, in every jot and tittle in the, the original autographs. The original, when it was first put to scripture, to pen to paper. Uh, it's the perfect word of God. Okay? And... People could say, well, we don't have exactly every translation. Well, God made sure he got, got, it, got it to us, the message to us, amen? And what's amazing is if you burned up all the manuscripts in the second century of Old and New Testament, and in the third century, all the Bible manuscripts, and any that existed, and, and parts of possibly the Gospel of John that survived the first century, if you burn them to a crisp, guess what? Scholars have found that you could still put together the entire Bible. You know how? By just putting the quotations in the Bible from the church fathers together. Isn't that heavy? That's pretty glorious. Amen? So we don't worship the Bible. We don't commit, you know, what's called bibliolatry, where we worship the Bible as though it's a God. But we do recognize. So people that usually will say that are, are people that go by experience more than by Scripture. And they're trying to diminish the authority of Scripture, or they don't believe in inerrancy. So it's basically a red herring, uh, and it's, it's not, you know. In fact, listen to this. Here's from one blog that kind of, you know, diminishes the importance of Scripture. And the blog, you know, on the surface, what it says, it sounds really good, actually. It sounds good. But when you look at it more deeply, you realize that it's nonsense. Listen to this statement. And it's warning against worshiping the Bible. And I agree, yeah, we don't worship the Bible. But it diminishes the importance of the Bible. The statement is, quote, Jesus is the thing. Scripture is the sign that points toward the thing. Scripture provides a series of portraits so that we will know the real thing when we see it. There's a lot of truth to that. The difference between Scripture and Christ is the difference between the menu and the food. The one describes the reality of the life-giving substance. The other is that life-giving substance. So the menu describes the food. You don't eat the menu. It points to the food. You eat the food. And same with the Bible. You know, you don't eat the Bible. You, you, you go to Jesus. So the Bible just points us to Jesus. It's, not, it's nothing more than a menu. Well, that's foolishness. You know why? Why is that foolishness? Anybody know why? Because God's word declares it is food. Now, I can't get milk from a menu unless one of my grandchildren are at the restaurant, at a restaurant with me, and they spill it on the menu, and I kind of just go like that, which would be gross. I wouldn't do that. 
Uh, but I couldn't get, you know, milk from a menu. But guess what? I can get milk from the Bible. First Peter 2.2 2 says, desire the pure or unadulterated milk of God's word. Amen. That you may grow in terms of salvation. Are you with me? The Bible says, eat thou honey for it is good. And the Bible compares God's word to honey. In Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about the, God's word being both milk and being meat. And some people are still on milk, even though they've been in the faith for some time, they should already be on meat, but they haven't graduated meat yet, and he comes down on them, because that's very serious to just stay on milk. And if you've been a Christian for a number of years, and all you know is John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes him should not perish, but have eternal life. That's good, you know that, but if you don't get beyond that, that's like a baby who's 10 years old, and then 14 years old, that's still going around, an adult then, drinking a bottle, you know, and eating baby food. Even though they have teeth and they can, don't have to drink a bottle. And when you talk to them, they're like, blah, 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 da, da. You know, and you're like, hey, bro. I, but they're, now, if they're stuck because they're mentally challenged, that's, that's, that's just being mentally challenged. Okay, that, then my heart's sad because the person's mentally challenged. It's not their fault. So I'm not talking about that. That's the reality. And, and be thankful uh, that you've been given your faculties and Bless the people that are in that situation. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about full-grown adults that could talk, but they're just lazy and they just never learn to talk. That would be a serious problem, right? It's a serious problem when Christians have been Christians for some time, but they don't know God's word. And they haven't gotten beyond a spiritual, you know, baba. And they're not on meat yet. Well, praise the Lord. I am so glad you're here. If you're tuning in on Wednesday night, that means you are chewing on not just drinking, not just milk, but you're chewing on the meat because we get in the meat here and that you're here because you want to be here. That's good. Keep growing in Christ together. Amen. Don't be distracted. It's good to see a good group here tonight. Now, it's interesting. Listen to uh, Hebrews 4.12. You can't say this about a menu. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Guess what? And he said, oh, a menu is just points to the food and the Bible just points to Jesus. You know, you don't eat the, eat the Bible. Yeah, you do. The Bible is far more than a menu. Amen? In fact, in John 6.63, Jesus said, The words that I speak are spirit and life. Wow. In Matthew 4, 4, Jesus said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out or from the mouth of God. Amen. And when you start looking at the Bible as a menu, guess what? What do you do with menus? You pick and choose what you like, right? You don't pick and choose what you like out of the Bible, amen? It doesn't give a bunch of suggestions as to what you might want to do. It's, it's filled with God's word, God's commands. Psalm 1830 says, As for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tested or tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Amen. Now, I certainly say this. There are people, and they must be warned, who look at the Bible, and they get in the Bible, they get all excited about the Bible, but they don't do what the Bible says. And I'd be frustrated with that if that's what the guy's talking about, but he's not just talking about that. The Bible says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. James 1.22, amen. And Jesus said to the Pharisees who were rejecting him to the point where they're going to go to hell, he said in John 5.39, he says, you search the scriptures diligently because in them you believe that you have eternal life, but it's these that testify about me. And he says, I'm saying these things that you may be saved, but you're unwilling to come to me that you might have life. So there's plenty of people who study their Bibles, but they never cry out to Jesus for salvation. They never turn from their sins and embrace Christ. Make sure that's not you, amen? Make sure that you're not coming to blessed hope. What a travesty that would be, that you'd be in a fellowship where you hear about the way of salvation over and over again in very clear terms, and you're learning the word of God, but you yourself are not embracing Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. How sad would that be? You're in hell? How do you get to hell? I don't know. Where do you go to church? I went to this church over here. Well, no wonder you're in hell. Well, I went to Bless Hope Chapel. How did you end up in hell then? They're really clearly preaching the gospel. I don't think those conversations will go on, you know, like that, because I think people would be too busy in sad, lonely torment, you know. But you know what? 
you have to make sure. I, you hear me say from time to time, God doesn't have any grandchildren. If you're a young person, don't think you're going to be saved because your parents are saved. And since they're saved, you must be saved. No. The Bible talks about how young people need to come to Christ too. Parents will sanctify, believing parents sanctify their children. That means they have a godly influence on them. Okay, and Paul uses the word sanctification in that context as being set apart from evil because godly parents will keep their children from evil, but you're not saved until you make a decision to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and place your faith in him, amen? So make sure, young people, that you're putting your trust in Jesus, amen? Make sure you know him, and then praise God that you have parents that love the Lord, amen? This is all very, very important. Ah, Another one. This is another. Now we're, we're moving along a little bit now. Can you believe it? We went through the first one. It took a little while. Second one was shorter. Here's another popular statement, you know. I don't go to church because there's too many what? Too many hypocrites. Amen. You ever hear that one? I think we've all heard that one. Oh, there's too many hypocrites. That's why I don't go to church, you know. Really? You know, usually, you know, when people know the truth and not going to church, if you follow them around, you'll see their lifestyle contradicts God's word. And people have all kinds of excuses. People will excuse themselves into hell, ultimately, which is very, very heartbreaking. Uh, now, if there were, first of all, there shouldn't be a bunch of hypocrites in a church. There are a lot of, there's truth to this. There are a lot of hypocrites in a lot of churches because they don't believe in church discipline. They don't want to rock the boat. They, they struggle with a very severe disease called non-rockaboditis, non you know? And that disease will, will leaven your fellowship. Remember in 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man who's having sexual relations with his father's wife, it says? That's serious stuff. And by father's wife, most likely it's referring to his stepmom. Otherwise, I think he would have just said his mother because that would have been made even more powerful. But we can't be sure. Maybe it was his mother, but I think it was his stepmom. And it says the church was, was, was accepting it. And Paul warns you need to boot this guy out of the church and give him the left foot of, you know, or the right foot of disfellowship. He doesn't say it that way, but he says, expel the wicked man from your midst because a little bit of leaven, a little bit of yeast, you know, you put a little bit of yeast in dough and it causes the whole batch of dough to rise. That little bit of yeast right there, that little evil that you guys are accepting will spread throughout the entire church because the message that is sent to that church by not bringing spiritual discipline on this man and saying you cannot be here if you're going to do that. I mean, I wouldn't say, hey man, here's the right foot of, bam, fellowship, get out of here. I'd in love plea with this guy to repent and turn from his sins and let him know that as Paul does in chapter six, the very next chapter, be not deceived. Know ye not that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, neither fornicators or adulterers or homosexuals or effeminate or drunkards or revilers, extortionists, so forth, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Uh, he warns him, you're not gonna inherit God's kingdom. And you're living in the kingdom of darkness, so you can't be here. And we're not going to celebrate your lifestyle as though the blood of Christ covers it because that will cause a message to go th ripple throughout the fellowship that God's not concerned about holiness. And the Bible says without holiness, no one will see the Lord. So you must get right with God. And I plead for that person to repent and get right. But if you don't have church discipline in the church, you don't preach holiness and righteousness, what happens? It spreads, just sin spreads throughout the church. But if you want to say, now, you know what I'm interested in? I'm interested in God's glory for Blessed Hope Chapel. I'm interested in God having true people that truly love him, sincere, genuine people that worship in spirit and truth. Amen? That's the way I preach the way I preach. I'd rather have two or three people only that love the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength than two or 3,000 people that are there because they want to get their ears tickled. Okay? But a lot of preachers, they won't even bring up certain doctrines because they don't, oh, it might be divisive. You know? I was just talking to somebody recently. He said, yeah, my pastor doesn't bring up doctrines that could be considered divisive. Well, yeah, I know a lot of, that's the, that's the Rick Warren way, you know? And it's because they, they don't, they don't want to offend anybody. But God's word is very offensive. In fact, when Jesus would have great multitudes follow him, you know what he would do, it says? He would, it, he, he, he would give them a hard saying. And it said, many would follow him no longer. You know, he gave them some sayings that were like, wow, super strong. 
And that's why Jesus talked about the cost of discipleship over and over again. And you must count the cost, he said. Amen? And he taught this way because he wanted genuine followers. So yeah, it's true that the churches, many churches have, are filled with hypocrites. You know, I remember uh, my son-in-law, Chad, when he went to a church before he became a Christian, it turned him off of God even more. He was abundant people that he was getting drunk with and fornicating with as a non-believer, and his friends were all fornicating with, were at that church. Many of them were raising their hands. He's like, these guys aren't Christians. And it made him sick to his stomach, and he said he began to hate God after that. Thankfully, my other son-in-law, Adam, before either of these guys were my son-in-laws, gave him a copy of They Sold Their Souls for Rock and Roll. And he saw the video and he hit his knees because he realized, I need to get right with God. And the fear of God came upon him and he got right with the Lord. And praise God, I, no one here is perfect. But, I'm, but this place is filled with people that deep down in their hearts, they love Jesus and they fear the Lord and they want to follow hard after him, amen? And they hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when they fall short, they cry out to God saying, have mercy on me, strengthen me, pick me up and help me walk a life that glorifies you, Amen? But it becomes an excuse still. Because even though there are churches that have plenty of hypocrites in them, there are also many churches, I believe, out there that have God-fearing, Jesus-loving, blood-bought, born-again, Holy Spirit-filled believers. Amen? And now sometimes they're hard to find. I understand that. But you need to look for biblical teaching, you know? We have a ton of people that watch on live stream because they're like, I found it. And they want the truth. They're not running from the truth. That's good. You know, but there's, there's churches throughout the world that love Jesus. Now, you guys, I want to encourage you, okay? Uh, this becomes an excuse because so often, it's a lame excuse, by the way. Because, of course, well, you're, well, what if I can find somebody that's not really walking? Well, then don't even come to any church because guess what? If you're looking for perfection, you're going to ruin that church. You've heard that said? If you're looking for a perfect church, don't join it because you're not perfect and you'll ruin it. It'll seek to be per- it will, it will uh, cease to be perfect. Such a re- real statement. But guess what? How many people, somebody mentioned their favorite team of any sport. Football. What's your favorite team in football? I got the 49ers. Who else? Raiders. Dolphins? Who's a Dolphin fan, man? I didn't know there's so many Dolphin fans up there. Oh, we had three guys in the best four. We have four of us, you know. Moved to Miami, no. Uh, <laughs> ever since I was a little kid, man, when they went undefeated, only undefeated team. No, just, I better not get on that. But <laughs> they're celebrating that this year, by the way, in, in, in NFL Lives or whatever that's called, after the, for the 50-year anniversary from 1972, uh, the only defeated, undefeated team. Okay, but let's say, who said a 49ers fan? Over here, was that you too and Rich? Rich, what, what, what are you? You like, you have a team? What's that? Okay. The Lambs. I'm a fan of the Lambs too, man. Brothers and sisters in Christ. Can't call the Rams the Lambs. They just won the Super Bowl, right? But let's take the 49ers, you know. Who's, well, let's take another team. Who's a really big football fan? You're like, I love football. Jesus is way better than football, but I love football. Come on. All right. Bro, Mark, what's your favorite team? Mark, what's your favorite team? Or Jeff? Oh, Jeff. It's Jeff. Which, Raiders, okay, let's say you go to a Raiders game, right? All right. Uh, let's say the Raiders are still out here, so it's close. Would you say, man, I'm not going to go, man, because I know some of these people are Rams fans, and they're hypocrites, and they're not wearing their colors, and they're not for real. And you know what? And there's some fans here that claim to be Raiders fans, and they got Raiders shirts on, but they're looking at their cell phone more than they're watching the game. These hypocrites. I'm never going to a Raiders game again. Would you do that? No, you wouldn't do that because you're there to see the Raiders, amen? You know, there's other Raiders fans there. You're going to have a good time. Guess what? That's a lame excuse when you say, I'm not going to church because there's hypocrites there. No, the same person will go to a concert or they'll go to a sporting event or they'll go to a theater or they'll go wherever, you know, and not think twice about who's there. That's a lame excuse. So the whole many, there's too many hypocrites in the church. That becomes an excuse for people that just, if you're serious about Jesus, you're going to obey him, Amen. And Jesus says, don't forsake the meeting together, or, the, or I'm sorry, God's word says, don't forsake the assembly of yourselves together, as is the habit of some. But get together all the more as you see the day of Christ approaching. Praise the Lord, it's good to see you guys tonight. Amen? But why does it say we're supposed to get together? To hear the word? Yeah, that's one reason. 1 Corinthians 14, Timothy, we see the word supposed to be preached uh, elsewhere in the scripture. Amen? 
but also so we could build each other up. Remember Sunday I was talking about that passage and it says that we're supposed to consider how we can stimulate either each other to love and good deeds? You are commanded, and I know I've said it just last Sunday, but I just want you to get it, that we're supposed to consider, think about, before we even get around our brothers and sisters, something to pray about even. How can I stimulate and encourage my brothers and sisters to good works? can send them scriptures, and throughout the week, how can I encourage so-and-so? How can I encourage so-and-so? How can, I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to encourage them. Maybe I send a text. Maybe I give them a phone call. You know, maybe I send them uh, something to bless them with and just let them know we love them in Christ or whatever. Maybe just a good word. Next time I see that person, make sure I give them a hug and say, I love you, bro. I love you, sister. We're supposed to think about those things, amen? And you can't, the Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Can you sharpen a piece of iron if you don't put the other piece of iron to it? Or if you don't put a sharpener to it? No. And you can't stimulate others to love and good works if you're not around them, if you're not encouraging them in some way. So uh, to, to say, well, there's too many hypocrites. Well, then you're disobeying God's word, which says not to forsake assembling yourselves together, which encourages us to love one another. To it says over and over again, love one another, encourage one another, amen? We're supposed to bless one another. And that means we need to be together as believers. Okay, next, another just terrible uh, statement. That's, you know, uh, oh, this one is a good one. This one, we get a good fight from time to time. Probably all the time, you know, quite often. You guys shouldn't spend time exposing people. You, could, you should be praying for them instead. You shouldn't be exposing false doctrines or, or evil. You guys should be praying for people instead. What's wrong with that statement? It's called the either-or fallacy, right? You can only do one thing. Like, like Christians, you know, they can't walk and chew gum at the same time, you know, that we can't pray and also witness that we can't love one another. That's like saying, you shouldn't pray, you should read your Bible. You shouldn't read your Bible, you should pray. No, I'm commanded to do both. And I'm also commanded, and you're commanded too, to expose false doctrine. You're commanded to expose darkness. How do I know that? Ephesians 5.11. Turn to Ephesians 5.11. It says, have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather what? Expose them. If you're a Christian, that's God's word to you. You're commanded to expose false doctrine. In fact, if you read the context, though, he's warning them. Uh, he says to them in verse uh, 7 of those who are in darkness, the sons of disobedience. In verse 6, he says, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Verse 6. And then in verse 7, he says, therefore, do not be partakers with them. And then in verse 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists of all God goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. So we're talking about the fruit right there as well. Do not participate. There it is. Do not participate in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but instead even what? expose them. Oh, well, that's only in the church, though. You can only do that in church because Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't we judge the things that are in the church, but we don't judge the things in the world. Well, what's he saying there? Paul says that in the context of church discipline in making that man who's having sex with his stepmom leave the church. We don't judge the world like that. Amen. We don't, you know, we don't pull the tears out of the world. We're not kingdom dominionists where we say, oh, you need to execute uh, everybody that's not a Christian or what have you. No, we say, hey, you know what? We basically follow Jesus. We witness people. If they don't listen, we wipe the dirt off our feet and we move on to the next home. Amen. We witness to somebody else. But we let people know, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and he will repay. Amen. You better get right with Jesus. But we do judge. Guess what? We are to make judgments regarding that which is darkness and that which is light in the world, not judging by taking a hold of someone and telling them, you know, making them leave the church. We don't do that in the world system. But Paul talks about, the Bible says, he that is spiritual judges all things. And Jesus said in John 7, judge with righteous judgment. That's a command. We're not supposed to judge hypocritically, right? For the measurement that you judge, you will be judged back. So if you have a beam in your eye and you're judging a brother for the speck in his eye, but you're not repenting for the beam that's in your eye, you're going to be judged. Oh, then we shouldn't judge at all. No, take the beam out of your eye. Then Jesus says, take the beam out of your eye. Then do what? Then take the speck out of your brother's eye. We need to help each other. But the context here, do not participate in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but instead even what? Expose them? What's the context? 
if you back up a few verses, Paul exposes what they're into. Verse 3, but immorality and impurity and greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You know, he's talking about the perversions these people are involved in. And then in verse is eight, 7 and 8, he says, don't be partakers with them. But then he said, verse 7, he says, but rather what? Don't participate in that fruitless seeds of darkness, but rather what? Expose them. He's talking about expose the works of the children of disobedience. That's the context. Otherwise, guess what? The apostle John can you imagine that person, a person who says, oh, we shouldn't expose evil, we should just pray for people. Can you imagine John writing the book of Revelation, exposing the beast system, 666, right? Jesus giving him revelation, getting all these visions from God. He's writing them down and, you know, the harlot, the great harlot that pollutes the world and it's got the golden cup full of her abominations by which she, and she's on many waters polluting the world and all these scriptures revealing this, this false satanic new world order that's counterfeit miracles, deceiving all kinds of professing Christians and just, you imagine someone saying, John, don't write that book. Just pray for people. You're not supposed to expose darkness, John. Just be a prayer warrior, John. Well, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. Well, we would. God would have used someone else, right? But God knew John would succumb to some fallacious argument like that. So these are just, I'm sorry, just ridiculous arguments. In fact, it's interesting. In John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, Jesus talked when the Holy Spirit comes. And he said three things that he would do. He'd convict the world of sin and of righteousness, and of judgment. And isn't that interesting? Well, that's the Holy Spirit's job, not our job. Uh, mm, uh. Because guess what? We're the hands and feet of Jesus. We're the habitation of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22. In 1 Corinthians 14, when it talks about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, it talks about discernment of spirits. A lot of people like to talk about tongues, 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 and more tongues. But they ignore the Bible verses that talk about a gift called the discernment of spirits where people, God gives certain Christians ability to see what Satan is doing in the spiritual world and how he's deceiving the masses. And they ignore those gifts. Satan hates that gift. But guess what? In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, when people even prophesy and give God's word, listen to what it says. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. That means a non-believer comes in and all of a sudden he's like, how did, how did he know that about me? How the pastor know that about me? The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Wow. You know that word disclosed? When people prophesy by the power of God's word, they use God's word. God's word comes through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. The word disclosed is the same word used in the Greek in John 16 when it says the Holy Spirit will convict. The word convict is translated from the same Greek word here it's used of believers who have the Holy Spirit speaking truth and then the secrets, the darkness of a person's life is exposed and they come to repentance. By the way, Ephesians 5.11, have no fellowship with the unfruitful deeds of darkness but rather expose them. That's the same Greek word again from John 16, translated convict from the Holy Spirit or disclosed as Holy Spirit, blood-bought believers are used by the Holy Spirit. And Ephesians 5.11 is for all Christians, we're supposed to warn people of darkness. That's why we do things like we do. And we see a ton of people get saved through videos like, you know, They Sold Their Souls or the first part one and part two of our Marvel DC exposés, you know. I was just interviewed on a big, uh, uh, did a big interview for a, a big Christian TV station uh, today, and I had to go toe-to-toe with somebody that was interviewed a couple weeks ago who's saying Harry Potter's actually good. He's a picture of Jesus and stuff, and they played me a minute and a half of that nonsense, and I was like, oh, Lord God, you know. Well, how do you answer that? Do you have an hour, <laughs> you know? Uh, and I just gave, I gave some strong answers, you know. First of all, J.K. Rowling, she says all these, you know, these characters, so many of these characters just strolled into her consciousness. She was just kind of writing them all down. And that when she'd write her writing for her books, that she was taking dictation from an audible voice. The Bible warns about doctors of demons, right? And it warns about, well, this man says there's parallels between Harry Potter and Jesus. I'm like, he's a sorcerer, you know? The Bible forbids sorcery. It's like making a, a book about a murderer and glorifying the murderer, or a book, and I use that kind of example, or a book glorifying uh, a, a homosexual or per- sexual perversion, but saying, but the guy's like Jesus in some ways. And I said, I could show you a lot more parallels between Harry Potter and Satanist Alester Crowley. In fact, I've shown a lot of parallels 
between the two in our video, Hollywood's War on God. And we're supposed to have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, amen? But rather expose them because guess what? The church is knee deep in this stuff. Much of the church is headlong in this stuff. And praise God, we had a brother testify, uh, you know, uh, I was Eric Poro last, was it last Sunday, saying praise God, a guy that came and watched the, your presentation, you know, gave a Marvel video to, you know, his church and they have Marvel Disney curriculum. And they jettisoned that and they put in, you know, Answers for Genesis curriculum instead after they saw the video. And I'm like, praise God, you know. By the way, you know there's a the video out now called Little Demon? And you know Little Demon, it's the, the woman has sex with Satan and she bursts. It's a cartoon, okay, put out by Disney. And she has sex with Satan and has a child called the Antichrist. Even the trailers, there's upside down pentagram, the same symbol that's used in the Church of Satan and upside down crosses in the trailer. And it's glorifying Satanism. And Satan's a cool guy, just like the Lucifer who came from, you know, Neil Ga Ga Gaiman who, from a very popular TV show from the comics. Of, uh, comics. It's just, and this is becoming normalized. And you know the what woman that plays the mother who had, she's the one that had sex with Satan to birth the Antichrist? The lady who does that part with her voice and stuff? She's into witchcraft heavily. Cast spells and everything. And they're interviewing her and the rest of the cast and she says, yeah. She goes, through this we're normalizing. She goes, I'm happy about the show. She didn't even answer the right question. The question was, how is it playing this complicated part of being the mother of the Antichrist? And she doesn't answer the question. And then she says, what was the question? Because she answers what's in her heart. You know what she says? I love the show because we're normalizing paganism. They're normalizing paganism. They call it Satanism. Just like the, the TV animator for Disney who said, I'm putting queerness everywhere. Nobody's trying to stop me. They, they have an agenda. And, as I, and so many pastors are sitting on their hands. They're saying, I'm not going to speak about this stuff. I don't want to offend people. I love you. I want you to know I love your children. You love your children. Amen? I love the Lord God. You need to know these things so you can guard your children from these things. Because how do you, why do you think Wicca and witchcraft has become so popular, is more popular in the, in the church today and among professing Christians than the Christian faith with so many of them? And why do you think paganism and Wicca among the youth has just skyrocketed? It's because there's all this advertising why do you think millions and millions and millions and millions and hundreds of millions of dollars are spent annually on advertising with just 30-second commercials? Because they know they can change people's... Now, you're talking about two-hour movies, guys. And people tune out the commercials a lot of times. They're into the movies, and they're promoting all these things. So we need to expose darkness, and we're commanded to. I love what Daniel 11 and 12 say. Those who do wickedly against the covenant, he shall corrupt with flattery. But the people who know their God shall be strong and carry out great exploits. Those who have insight, in chapter 12 he says, will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Man. The Bible says in Hosea 6, 4, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Proverbs 27, 12 says this, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple goes on and suffers for it. Here's another statement. Did that make that one clear enough? Okay, I went way off beyond what I wanted to say, but I've only got four minutes. Uh, I'll do one more. <laughs> That's funny. This is all we got through on our show, too. <laughs> Five of the ten. Uh, Bible prophecy is too confusing. And that's a true statement for many people. I said sometimes there's truth in these statements, but I want to encourage those of you who said, yeah, I feel that way too. Guess what? God doesn't encourage, you know, you don't, you don't eat an elephant in one sitting, amen? How do you eat an elephant, guys? One bite at a time. You, some of you said that with conviction. How does it taste, man? <laughs> uh, yeah, one bite at a time. Well, Rick Warren said that prophecy, Bible prophecy, is a distraction from the devil. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, wow. My Bible says that prophecy is a lamp in a, light, in, a, in a dark place, right? Leading us to the second coming of Christ. Second Peter chapter 1. Uh, you know what? God's word, in fact, it's funny when I just quoted from, Reve from the book of Daniel. 
He's talking about prophecy and having insight about the end times and the end, and the end of days. And he, he says, people shall go to and fro and knowledge will increase. And sometimes that's interpreted as people are going to travel like crazy. And there's going to be exponential knowledge. And there, there may be an application to that, but you know what the first reference is, though? That term to and fro is used in the Bible of going and searching the scriptures. In the last days, there'll be people going to and fro, and there are. Here we are, amen? There's millions of us searching the scriptures, and our knowledge is increasing, amen? And we're getting spiritual insights into what's going on now and what's coming. And guess what? That's how you lead many to Christ. Do you know how many people came to Christ when Hal Lindsey, I didn't agree with all of his eschatology, the, the pre-tribulationism and so forth, uh, but I did, you know, did agree that, yeah, God's not done with Israel. Amen to that. And I did agree that the Antichrist is coming and so forth. You know how many people came to Christ through the book Late Great Planet Earth and Countdown to Armageddon? Yeah, they were, became the best-selling, besides the Bible, nonfiction books, at least uh, the Late Great Planet Earth did, of its time. And all kinds of people came to Christ through those books of prophecy. That's how you, you can use prophecy to lead people to Christ. And by the way, prophecy is not given to hide the truth of God's word, but rather to disclose it. In fact, brothers and sisters, I'll say this, and then I'm going to close, because I don't need to make this point too long, because we're studying prophecy. But I will say this, and then we're going to say a prayer, because I want to get, get done on time, or really close to on time. The book of Revelation, the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to have a revelation? means to reveal, amen? It doesn't say the book of hiding truth. No, it's the book of Revelation. The Greek word is apocalypsis. And apocalypsis means to unveil, to lift up a curtain so you can see, amen? It's called the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, which he gave unto his servants to show them, to show them, not to hide, amen? In fact, in verse three, he gives a blessing. Blesses he that reads, the words of this prophecy, right? Who reads and hears, and then listen to what he says, and keeps the words of this prophecy. How can you keep something you don't understand? Ivan, can you after service, blah, 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 blah. can you? You can't, you can't keep what I just said because it makes no sense, right? No, but guess what? God says he that reads and hears and keeps the words of this prophecy. That means he expects us to be able to understand it. How can we keep it if we can't understand it? And by the way, God knows that Satan would attack this book. That's why verse 3 says, blessed is he that reads and hears and keeps the words of his prophecy because he wants to let you know you'd be blessed, amen? It's the only Bible book in the entire Bible that provides an outline. Revelation 1, 19, uh, uh, write the things which thou hast seen in chapter one, the end of chapter one, that's the vision he saw of Jesus with eyes of fire, hair of white wool and snow and radical, amen, his face like the sun. Write what you have seen and the things that are, that's chapters two and three, what's going on in the seven churches at that time that people need to repent and get right and, and the promises of encouragement. And then he says, and the things that are hereafter, Things that are or things that you have seen, past, things that are, present, intense, things that are hereafter that are going to happen in the future. And then we get through the churches and the letters to the church. You get to Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. And John says he's caught up to heaven and he's shown the things that will happen hereafter, in the hereafter. Heavy duty. God wants us to understand these things. Amen? So prophecy is very, very important. And I'm going to skip the last five proclamations because I'm looking it up and it's 831 and it's time to stand up and pray. Amen.